How's the microphone? Can you all hear me fine? Slavoj has insisted tonight that we call him by his first name, and I'm going to try to force myself to do that. Usually I call famous authors by their family names because I'm always worried about the borrowed, the borrowed glory of a false intimacy of calling somebody by first name, but we'll, we'll do as he asks. I used to tell my friends that Slavoj was the only philosopher I'd pay $100 to see live. And I, but before tonight, I had the chance to see him five times, and all of those were free. And this is number six, and imagine my surprise to discover that Hernan removed $100 from my paycheck. <laughs> well, in some ways, we're opposites. I'm an object-oriented philosopher, and you could call Slavoj one of the major subject-oriented philosophers, along with his compatriot or his, his colleague, uh, Alain Badiou. But there are some th things that I really gravitate towards in his writing. First of all, I think philosophers should be funny. Too few of them are. And I would have to say that Slavoj is probably the first Western philosopher since Giordano Bruno in the 1500s to, who could probably have made a living as a stand-up comic if he had to. Now, of course, Bruno was burned at the stake in 1600. <laughs> I doubt that's going to be Slavoj's fate, but in a different time, perhaps, you can imagine a situation where it could have gone that direction. Uh, also, simply the animal energy of his writings and his, his public speaking. When I started graduate school in the early 1990s, there was a certain way of writing that I know he hates also that involves putting everything in parentheses and quotation marks, and this is simply de-energizing and debilitating, and he, he avoids this wonderfully. He simply takes a stand on everything and challenges you to disagree. But here are some differences. You could say that Slavoj belongs to a modern tradition of philosophy, whereas I would say that I belong to what I call a non-modern tradition of philosophy that's more recent. I'm stealing that term non-modern from Bruno Latour. Slavoj would say that we are seeking a re-enchantment of the world after the alienation of modernity, whereas I would say the world was never disenchanted in the first place. We've always been fascinated by the world. We've always been entangled with it and involved with it. Another thing, I, uh, an issue I have with modern is that modern philosophy is in many ways a taxonomy. It says there are at least two different kinds of beings, thought and world, or nature and spirits, or um, human and world. It starts by saying there are two diff totally different kinds of things and they both need a different ontology uh, to handle them properly. The human thought needs one kind of ontology, uh, nature needs another ontology. Whereas, uh, and I, I, by the way, I see this as an extension of the medieval taxonomy, which was between creator and created. There were two also basic kinds of things for medieval ontology. Uh, whereas in non-modern philosophy, we start with what we call a flat ontology, which means we start off by assuming that everything has to be treated in the same terms. So we start off by assuming that the human being is simply an object like others. Yes, a very interesting object to us, an object that has lots of talents, perhaps, that chairs and tables do not, but an object nonetheless, and that you cannot start off by inscribing what's special about humans into the very foundation of philosophy. That has to come later. So you have to start off, this is why we give long lists a lot in object-oriented ontology. Uh, you know, I all say paper, grasshoppers, the planet Mars, chemicals, and so forth. You'll find nine or ten of these objects in a row. It's an attempt to create that sense of flattening for the reader. All right. Um, there's also a kind of philosophy that I would call neo-modern philosophy, which I think it describes Slavoj's position a little more accurately. I should say that neo usually is taken as a derogatory prefix. If you call somebody neo something or other, it often means that you're just accusing them of rehashing the original version. That's not what I mean here. By neo-modern philosophy, I mean the kind that doesn't stay with a simple opposition between subject and object, but that tends to assimilate the object into the subject in some way. And so this starts uh, with authors like Maimon and Fichte, the ones immediately after Kant, you know, where Kant said there is a thing in itself out there that we, we can think about, but we can never know. 
these critiques of Kant tended to say that that itself is a performative contradiction because if you're thinking a thing outside thought, that itself is a thought, and therefore it makes no sense to talk about this thing in itself that's outside of thought. The thing in itself has to somehow be inscribed in the thought, the circle of thought already. You find a lot of this in Slavoj's work, you find it in Badiou's, you also find it in Quentin Meassou of my own generation. Uh, it also has an inverse, which I would call arch-modernism, which is where they're reducing the subject to the object, say, to cognitive science, a way of trying to, to minimize the modern difference by letting science be the, the dominant discourse. And what Slavoj tells us in a number of his, pub of his publications is that the way Hegel radicalized Kant by getting rid of the thing in itself is also the way that Lacan radicalized Freud, so that the... Uh, unconscious in Freud is in some sense a real thing, a quasi-biological entity that's there, hidden beneath appearance. For Lacan, that's not really true. The, the unconscious occurs in the gaps and ruptures on the surface. There's not really a hidden place where the unconscious is. Now, what I would say is that uh, modern, modern, uh, sorry, neo-modern philosophy radicalizes Kant in the wrong way. Uh, it tends to say that the problem with Kant, this great genius, is that he allowed for finitude, this idea that humans cannot reach the thing in itself because we are only experiencing according to space-time and the 12 categories of the understanding, and so we can never get at the thing outside there. And the neo-modern philosophers tend to try to get rid of this finitude, which they distrust. I would go the other way. I think the finitude is uh, insurmountable. I think the problem with Kant is that he left the human world relation at the center of philosophy, and it's the only real relation he can talk about. Kant doesn't really allow you to talk about the collision of two inanimate entities, except insofar as we are talking about it, and therefore the conditions of human experience apply to discussing that. So I think what should have happened is people should have said Kant is a genius precisely because of the finitude. He just shouldn't have reduced it to the human world gap so that we poor humans can't reach the end itself. It's a, it's a, purely pro, it's a problem of the subject, of the human being. For me, the same problem happens when inanimate objects collide. To take the old example from Islamic philosophy, when fire burns cotton, the fire is not making contact with all the properties of the cotton, but only with a caricature or a translation or a distortion of the cotton. And so uh, there's no direct contact possible in the inanimate world either. And so the same problem that happens in the subject happens in the inanimate world as well. This is one of the central principles of triple O, as we call object-oriented ontology. So if you want to speak about this counterfactually in terms of the history of philosophy, instead of a German idealism, there could have been a German realism at that same moment that took the path I've just sketched. And it was quite uh, plausible because Germany, German philosophy at the time was very much under the influence of Leibniz. And Leibniz also allows for this world of non-human things mirroring each other and reflecting each other. This could have happened. So in a way, Triple O is just trying to create German idealism 200 years after it first could have been born. All right, now realism. This is another prob probable difference between us. I know Slavoj doesn't like being called an idealist always, but he certainly wouldn't call himself a realist, I don't think. Uh, realism is sometimes also called naive realism, as if there were other kinds, according to these critics. They think all the realism is naive. And this means, according to them, the idea that there's a reality outside the mind, that the mind has nothing to do with constructing. I think that's the wrong way to define naive realism. I think naive realism is the kind of realism that thinks there's a world outside the mind and I can know it. That's the first problem, because I think the real is so real that it cannot be known. It can be gotten at indirectly. It's not completely inaccessible, but it's inaccessible only through what I call allure. Something is summoning you, something is drawing you, with aesthetics being a very clear case of that. Something is summoning you without being directly accessible. That's one problem with, with what they call naive realism. Adrian Johnston, who among many other things is one of the best interpreters of Slavoj that we have, uh, claims that I will be left with nothing but negative theology if I take this path. But that assumes that there's only two options. You either know something or you don't. Whereas this is what is called Mino's paradox. This is what Socrates criticizes, the idea that you already know something or you don't. I think the, the truth is that we are somewhere in between those. 
And this is the foundation for philosophia in the Greek meaning of it, that it's a love of wisdom. You never attain the wisdom. You're always somewhere in between there. And I think also this is what aesthetics is about. Aesthetics is not a kind of knowledge any more than philosophy is, and this holds for architecture as well as the arts. You obviously make use of knowledge in architecture, just as we do in philosophy, but you are not primarily producing knowledge. That's, that, that's a side effect in most of what you're doing in architecture. You're producing something else. You're producing something that's not ever fully knowable, not ever fully paraphrasable in literal terms, in terms of you can say literally what the 25 qualities of this building are. You can try that, but it's never going to work. So aesthetics is very central for triple O. And how am I doing on time, Anna? Fine? Okay. Um, here's another problem I have with naive realism. People always say realism is the view that something exists outside the mind. Who says that the mind is the only thing with an outside? There's an outside also when two objects interact. And I say that there's a reality outside of that interaction. When the fire burns the cotton, there's a cotton outside of the, what the fire interacts with. And so realism is something that affects not just us, something outside our mind. It, it implies also something outside of objects when they interact. So objects translate each other, just as we translate them. Alfred North Whitehead got a glimpse of this in his wonderful sort of throwback philosophy in the 1920s. But Whitehead, for me, is too relational. He reduces objects to their relations with other things, whereas Triple O is all about the irreducibility of objects to their relations. So, uh, what is an example where Slavoj seems to be an anti-realist? I'll take one of my favorite examples from the sublime object of ideology, which was not his first book, but his breakthrough book, the book that really made him known to a wide audience from 1989. Uh, and that is his very interesting remarks on anti-Semitism. He makes there a very interesting claim that if somebody just says, uh, Jews conspire and manipulate, that's not quite anti-Semitism yet. Anti-Semitism is the next step where you say they conspire and manipulate because they're Jews. In other words, there's some hidden essential core that's causing the conspiracies and manipulation. Fascinating idea. But I would put it somewhat differently. It sounds there like he's saying that the mistake is in saying that Jewishness is some sort of real entity outside of all the individual cases. Now, if an anti-Semite were to make anti-Semitic remarks, you would, of course, say you shouldn't generalize, right? Jews are individual people, each with their own qualities and traits, and you can't generalize about a whole group. That is something you would and should say. However, I would take a different tack in, in responding to the anti-Semite. I would say that you cannot know what that essence is. And I'm going to show this by um, making a parallel critique of Edward Said. Edward Said, I could never say anything against him in Cairo because he was a kind of saint on campus. And I, I, really, I, I was very happy to have a major uh, person writing in the US media defending the Palestinian side. But there's a problem with his major book, uh, Orientalism. There are several problems, but one, the problem I'm going to talk about here is at one point in the book, he relies on the argument that you can't generalize about the Orient. And of course, Orient's too big a term in its colonialist use. It, it referred to the Middle East and to the Far East and so forth. But leaving that aside, he says at one point in the book that you can't generalize, everybody's an individual, right? There are just a lot of individuals in the Middle East. You can't make a sweeping statement about what the Orient is. But that occurred to me, then it occurred to me that that is close to the ontology of Margaret Thatcher, who says that society doesn't exist. There's only families and individuals. And it's, the, the fact is, we do try to learn things about culture as a whole. When I went to Egypt for the first time in 2000, there were a lot of things I had to learn about Middle Eastern culture. You can put your foot in your mouth if you don't. You have to learn a lot of things about what can be said, what can't be said. One of my students in Cairo who spoke fluent English had a, a night job telemarketing to the U.S., and he had to take a culture course about Americans. So I got to see that in reverse, and it was hilarious. They, they taught him you can't ask Americans if they're married, you can't ask them their salary, all things that are very normal for a taxi driver in Cairo to ask you. 
So it wouldn't make much sense to say that there's no such thing as Egyptian culture or Middle Eastern culture. You should be able to say something about it. I think the problem with Orientalism and the problem with Essentialism comes when somebody claims to know it. So in other words, it's not Orientalist to say Egyptian culture is different in some ways from English culture. The problem comes when you say, we know that the Middle Eastern peoples are, peoples are incapable of self-rule and therefore they need a viceroy to come from Europe and, and command them. This, this is where the anti-Semitism, the racism, the, the bad essentialism come in. I don't think there's a problem with essence as such. And I think one of the problems with recent theory is it's been too suspicious of the notion of essence. It takes away the realist part of theory. Because if everything has its own character, then everything has an essence for that very reason. It's a changeable essence, maybe. But it's an essence. And in fact, this is how Aristotle defines substance. Substance, another uh, much belie a beleaguered concept today uh, in contemporary philosophy. The most interesting definition Aristotle gives of substance is it's the thing that can have different qualities at different times. So white is always white and sad is always sad, but Socrates can be happy one minute and sad the next. That's what makes him a substance. The most interesting human characters are often capable of different polarizations of personality at different times. The famous sinner-saint polarity. You've got Paul, who's the persecutor of the Christians and then becomes the apostle of the Christians. And I've always been fascinated by the example of, of Scandinavia now known for the most humane social democracy in Europe, but they were once the marauding Vikings. So what's the proper reaction to that? I don't think it would be to say necessarily that there is no essence to Scandinavian civilization. It probably means that there is, but it's something deeper than either marauding or social democracy. Those are surface properties. And this, we might get into this when we, if we come to quantum theory lately, which I know Slavoj likes a lot. All right, so um, let me just... Do I have time for a few brief remarks before I wrap it up? Okay. All right. Now, one issue that's going to come up tonight is that uh, objects for me are non-relational. Objects are that which resist any reduction to their components or to their outward effects. And so objects for me are non-relational. And I know sometimes Slavoj seems to agree with that, as when he was reading my immaterialism book recently, but sometimes he talks, when he's writing against Levi Bryant, he said that the subject is nothing but a pure network of relations. So I want to hear what he says about that. Architecturally, there is an implication here, and, and I'll refer to Patrick Schumacher again. Uh, in his huge manifesto, two-volume, Autopoiesis of Architecture, which I learned a lot from, actually, as a newcomer to architecture, he, he borrows Luhmann's terminology and says that architecture is about framing social communications. I think it cannot be that, or it cannot be just that. You're not creating communication. You're also creating non-communication. You're making discrete things with an inside, and that inside does not completely communicate with the outside. So architecture has to be, at least in large part, about uh, non-communication. And one of my favorite moments in Patrick's book is when he says... You know, every architectural theory has its vices, and I have to admit my vice is I don't know where to put the doors and windows. Because everything's supposed to be a gradient and flowing naturally, and so it becomes kind of arbitrary way to articulate the building. <laughs> and I think that's a serious problem. And David Rue, in a very nice piece that he wrote in TARP, Architectural Manual, a few years ago, talked about the worry that with the excessive concern with how the building flows into its environments gradually, gently, without any discernible break-off, that, ar that ar uh, architecture could blend into ecology and disappear, that everything could become about the carbon footprint and there could be no autonomy to the discipline. So I, I would worry about bringing too much relationality into architecture. And another way that relationality is usually brought into a lot of fields is to bring the socio-political relationality into it. Now, I'm not enough of a formalist to say that the, an aesthetic work cannot communicate with any of the socio-political circumstances. Of course it can, and there are obvious examples like Uncle Tom's Cabin or Picasso's Guernica, uh, and the list goes on. However, I don't think that they arbitrarily include everything in their environment. It's a very selective process by which an object assimilates influences from its environment, and we have to know more about how that process occurs before we simply shoot the moon and say, 
everything social and political. There's nothing outside of, of ideology. There's nothing outside of politics. So uh, I guess I will leave it there. Thank you. hope that wasn't too long. Uh, does it work? I hope it works also. It works. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, I see a problem today. I don't, I mean, that the, the topic you indicated is so fundamental that I have no illusions that we will arrive at. It would be a great success if we just somehow clarify where the difference really is. Because I think the biggest problem in so-called philosophical dialogues. It's not who is right, but in what does the difference reside in the first place. And here I'm pretty much a pessimist. I think the entire history of philosophy is a history of one guy allegedly superseding the other, but really misreading him. For example, as an old Plato admirer, I claim it's clear how Aristotle misread Plato, or to go later, it's clear that Kant misread Leibniz and the previous philosophers. Fichte Schelling misread Kant, he Hegel misread all of them. My favorite example. <laughs> if any guy didn't understand Hegel, it was Marx, and so on and so on. So uh, let's just be modest, and I will just try to, uh, to uh, mark some differences. There are so many things to say. First, Already beginning with that Latour thesis, we were never modern and so on. I'm here a naive, I admit it openly, a naive believer in modernity. I claim that, uh, that with modernity something happens at the level of science, modern science, at the level of uh, politics, at the level of subjectivity and so on and so on, which uh, simply cannot be dismissed as just another form of, of enchantment and so on and so on. Just look at politics, whatever doubts we do have, but the whole political vision of French Revolution is something radically new. That's just one point on which I would insist. Then uh, let's go on. Maybe one of the differences that we have is Although you have some sympathy for Heidegger, but if there ever was a thinker, I claim, who is radically historicist and transcendental, it's Heidegger. Here I never got your reference to quadruple objects, how you link it with Heidegger, because when Heidegger speaks about das Gefiert, the quadruple, his point is, of course, not in the usual Kantian sense, but in more radical sense, Transcendental. What do I mean by transcendental? It's simply the idea, the idea that because of our finitude, we never speak from a void. We are always thrown into certain pre-understanding of the world, which is always, they like transcendental thinkers, did phrase, always already here. You cannot... You never encounter, as you know very well, you never encounter simply things the way they are. You always approach them from a certain historically specific horizon. And for Heidegger, this is, Germans have this beautiful term, unhintergebar, what you cannot step behind. For example, for Heidegger, each epoch is characterized by a certain disclosure of being. In modernity, 
objects, what is really objective is just object of science, quantifiable, all other things are subjective expressions and so on and so on. In medieval times, reality appeared in a different way and so on and so on. Now what I agree with, where I do agree with you, is that we should step beyond the transcendental. That transcendental circle, this circle of always already, simply is not strong enough to confront us with today's problems. Let me take the one who is for me the ultimate transcendentalist, uh, Jürgen Habermas. When we have the threat that uh, biogenetics will objectivize us, he pulls a simple Habermas, a simple transcendental trick. His reasoning is that even if I objectify you as a neuronal mechanism, in doing this, I already presuppose certain rational argumentation and so on and so on, which is a priori here, which cannot be itself objectivized in this way. So, whichever way we approach reality, a transcendental horizon is here. And to be slightly sarcastic, that's how Habermas ended up uh, doing a book together with Ratzinger, with the Pope, you know, rejecting So. Again, uh, I think that a transcendental approach is something very harsh. And one can even read you in a loving way, not critically. Your works are transcendental in the sense that, for example, you're wonderful and your ontology is very powerful. Description of reality, it's a certain vision that is simply here and you describe. It's a kind of a priori. It's not that you just look at the world and, oh my God, you discovered it is like this. And I agree with you, here we also agree, that, uh, and here we are all followers of Kenten Meyasu, that the transcendental dimension shouldn't be the last horizon, because then you end, it in, this, end in this Heideggerian deadlock. We just have a succession of uh, trans different transcendental horizons, and so on and so on. So here I would say... The transcendental problem is much stronger. But let's go on more interesting topic, uh, topics. Uh, I like what you said. It's a wonderful formulation about how uh, it's not only either subjectivism we constitute reality or reality is out there unknowable or reality is out there we can know, we can know it. My position would have been here the fourth one, maybe more subtle. Yes, I agree with you. Reality is out there impenetrable. We cannot ever fully get at it. What I would have done, and probably you would disagree, is to add an additional, sorry for the implicit obscenity, turn of the screw, and to add that uh, I always was fascinated by this wonderful saying of Hegel, it's not literally like this, but more or less he says it, that the secrets of the Egyptians were also the secrets for the Egyptians themselves. That is to say, I don't think there is a reality in itself which is just impenetrable to us. What if, and that's how in my naive way I read one of the lessons of quantum physics, what if this impenetrability is and I mean this in the most radical sense imaginable. A feature of reality itself. 
Reality is not just out there, we cannot get at it. Reality is in itself flawed, imperfect, antagonistic. It's incomplete in itself. That's why, if I can tell another story, probably you know it, which I love it, uh, the best quantum physics uh, uh, joke, uh, I read this in some simple introduction to philosophy. It's my favorite philosophical narrative. The idea is this one, to understand, and this is the big conflict in philosophy, what are the ontological consequences of quantum physics? They claim, imagine a video game. You move in it, and you see some trees in the background, a forest. You cannot go there and see the forest, the trees, from close up, because simply the game is not programmed in this way. If you come too close to the trees, you just see some vague dots, contours. Why? Because it's not part of the game, universe the way it's constructed, that you can go there. So in this wonderful reading it go, it, that I like, it goes on like this, that the lesson of quantum physics is that God constructed our world like a lazy uh, computer designer. <laughs> he said, oh, in the same way that in a computer game, you know, it happens on a certain field where you kill Pokemons, fight, whatever, <laughs> but you are not meant to go back close to that door, or the house, just the outside is constructed, because, so why should God lose time constructing the inside? And the idea, it's a wonderful, ironic idea, it's a good feeling, is that uh, we, as it were, caught God with his pants down. We, God thought, that's the, this ironic reading of quantum physics, God thought, oh, these stupid humans will never go beyond the structure of atom. So we can leave it ontologically incomplete. Why should I lose time constructing? But we were a little bit too bright for God. You know, we went there and we found indeterminacy and so on and so on. And that's the big difference between Heisenberg and Bohr. Heisenberg still thought that indeterminacy is just uh, epistemological. We cannot have it both ways, velocity and position, but in themselves particles have both properties. Bohr goes further, they don't have. So that's... That would be my, as it were, addition, that this imperfection is part of reality itself. Reality in itself is, in this sense, imperfect. It's not that there is full reality out there, we just don't get it. I mean, I'm not denying that there are aspects which are unknown to us and so on, but that, again, imperfection is out is out there. Uh, the second thing I would add here, I mean, I'm so sorry, stop me when I speak to you because I have so many things to say. Okay, let's not get lost here. Let's go to the topic of subject. I, uh, I always think maybe I am wrong that, uh, that the problem with triple O is for me that, okay, it's easy to say subject is ultimately just another object. In a certain way, of course it is. I mean, we don't exist without bodily substance and so on and so on. But what I would have said is that modern subjectivity is not simply a meta-actant, meta-agent, like 
an object which or who doesn't want to be just an object but wants to posit the entire world and so on and so on. Subject is, for me, I don't have time to go into it, it's a complex topic, something much more paradoxically. It's more an impassive entity. It's, in a way, this failure, lack of being, in a way, coming out to be existing. Which is why subject for me is not an all-powerful agent. It's just a certain, at its most fundamental. Subject is for me a certain, if you want to, structural deadlock, impossibility, passivity. What do I mean by this? Let me go on here. For Lacan, subject does have always an object that it is. It's just that the paradox of subject is that the subject is an object <coughs> in, uh, sorry, unavailable to itself. To be a subject means radically not to know what for an object I am. And it's not just this. It's that this surplus of not knowing has to be embodied in an additional paradoxical object called by Lacan, object Smollett, the object call of desire, and so on and so on. Which is why, I don't, I'm a, I will talk too much, I'm afraid. Uh, which is why, for Lacan, you know, when people think, oh, for, uh, for psychoanalysis, object of desire is forever eluding. Yes, but that object is not out there, I cannot ever reach it. That object is myself. Subject, which is why for Lacan, the ultimate subject in sex terms is a woman with this eternal hysterical question, tell me why you love me. It means tell me what for an object I am, but of course you cannot ever answer it. Object, the true enigma, psychoanalysis has here a wonderful theory of subjectivity. The true enigma is a small child, he or she sees that he or she is manipulated by parents, they want something from you, they play their traumas through you, but it's never clear to you what they want from you, what you are for them. This abyss defines the subject. So subject is not mega strong, subject is, I agree with you, this is my scene for you, not one among the objects, but not in the sense of we have an objective world and look, look, that crappy human being wants to be everything. No, subject is for me rather an effect of limitation. Subject means we are in certain horizon, we cannot move beyond. Now I come to another crucial point, I wonder if you would agree. Uh, reality real. Here, and I find an echo with what you were saying about this, how the thing in itself, it's not that it's out there and then all this naive in the bad sense topic, can we grab it or not? We can, but not directly. We can grab it through the very structure of failures to get at it. And if you allow me to conclude slowly, then I have just one more remark, to give you an example which I used maybe about ten times in my books, but I think it's a perfect one. From Lévi-Strauss, in one of his best essays in his structural anthropology, Do Dual Organizations Exist? 
Levi-Strauss reports of his experience in, uh, with some, um, I think it's even North American, uh, uh, Indian, Native American, I hate the term, it's more racist, I think, than Indian. I spoke with my Indian friends, they all tell me the same thing. I much prefer to be called Indian than Native American. If I'm Native American means what? And you are cultural American, same nature. If I'm Indian, called at least my name is a monument to white man's stupidity. So <laughs> who thought they are in India? So what I'm saying is that uh, this is what he uh, Levistros reports on. He went to a certain village and asked the people there, inhabitants, tribal village, draw me the map of your village. And he noticed that he got two totally different drawings. One was a kind of a hierarchic concentric, the, 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 the sanctuary with all the rich people's huts and so on in center, and ordinary members around. The other one was more dualist. Rich ruling priests on the one side, the other... Uh, so, but then uh, his idea was, but it's simple to establish what is reality. You take a helicopter, you took a photo, and you see how houses are really disposed. So, in this sense, you can compare these wrong images with reality. And you can get at it that uh, none of them fits. But then uh, Levi-Strauss says something wonderful. He says, the point is not that these two images don't fit reality. Their truth is in the way they miss reality. Because in the gap that separates these two images, you, this very gap, this failure to represent properly social reality, tells you the deepest truth about social reality. That it was uh, class society at its beginning, these two drawings, which both falsify social edifice, uh, register the growing social antagonism. So you see how, although none of them fits reality, the truth is the social antagonism which is registered in this very failure. And coming back to anti-Semitism, that's why I love Lacan's saying, I again often use it, that, uh, I'm sorry, it's a little bit male chauvinist, I could provide to you another version that if we have a pathologically jealous husband and even if all his suspicions are true his wife is sleeping around blah blah his jealousy is still pathological because the true point is not are the, my obsessions about my wife true or not the true point is why do I need this pathological jealousy to maintain my identity? And I claim that would be my approach. It's exactly the same with anti-Semitism. If, let's say I'm in Germany in 35, I want to debate with a, okay, not Nazi friend of mine, a Nazi guy, the truth about anti-Semitism. The moment I limit the debate to, are Jews really like that, the way you claim, I'm lost. Because if you approach it in this way, the result would be a compromise. Yes, maybe you anti-Semites exaggerate a little bit, but you have a point. Like, anti-Semites claim you, uh, uh, Jews exploit us Germans. Well, up to a point, this was definitely true. Many Jews were rich in a formal sense, they did it. Jews seduce our girls. Well, I hope they did, and I hope the other way around. And you know what I mean? What makes Nazi 
Anti-Semitism pathological is not, is it true or not, what they claim about the Jews. It is, why do they need anti-Semitism to assert their identity, their political vision, and so on and so on. And here I would define truth as opposed to simple knowledge. At the level of simple knowledge, you ask, anti-Semitism claims this, that, is it true or not? Uh, but, okay, that's the next point. Now to conclude, we, yeah, immediately. Just one more point, because I have many others. Uh, I, surprisingly, where we do agree, as we already established, is that I'm also like you, and it may be surprising to some of you, totally on your side against this absolutely predominant doxa today, Whenever you have a debate, I agree with you to, on the one hand, as you pointed out about Egypt, uh, I mean, this uh, cheap historicism in the sense of, you know, whenever that's one safe strategy in today's thinking, whenever you have a principal debate and you are losing, if you take recourse to this cheap historicism. Like, I've been to many feminist debates where the site which was losing said, but wait a minute, woman doesn't exist. There are only prostitutes, wives, uh, single mothers. Which, you know, this cheap relativization, particularization. I totally agree with you. Universality has a certain actuality and so on. Second point uh, where I agree with you is this immobilism. Because the other doxa of today is things are dynamic, every fixation, every fixed identity is uh, something which is just a temporary reification, fixation. No, I agree with your wonderful formulas where you claim that, in a way, identity precedes activity. I just would give to it maybe a double, a further twist, so that I don't lose time now. Uh, uh, let's go to your key point uh, reduction of objects to relations. What, would you go as far, maybe here is the understanding. I agree with you, objects cannot be reduced to a set of relations, especially actual relations. There is always an excess. But I claim, nonetheless, this excess can be generated through relations. Let me take an example similar to your East India Company. Let's take communism. It's a cause, which it is totally clear that communism as a cause, and I'm very critical towards it, although I still consider myself a communist, communism as a cause exists only insofar as it is practiced, actualized, debated among humans. It is this paradoxical entity, all, all social causes are like this. They exist only through incessant activity of individuals. But nonetheless, I agree with you, they cannot be reduced to it. That would be my paradox. They can totally depend on relations, but they have an excess. For example, it is, where would be the in itself of communism? Although communism began as uh, the idea of equality, transparency, and so on, it's totally legitimate to ask the question, but isn't there another hidden side of communism? Was Stalinist deviation really just a secondary mistake, or was it an actualization of something that was already 
originally possible in the idea of communism and so on and so on. So I don't get it. For example, let's take a case of communism. Isn't it something that, although it is fully rooted in relations, it is alive as an idea only in so far as people debate it, fight for it and so on, it still has an in, an in itself. But it's a paradoxical in itself, which, again, that's the paradox I would insist on. It doesn't exist outside relations, but it's posited by relations themselves as there in itself, as something transcendent, getting over them, and so on and so on. Okay, I have many other things to say. I will not now lose time. For example, when you mentioned <laughs> objectivity and so on. Slavoj, I'm going to... Interrupt. I already told her before that he should act as if he is a, she is a domina with a I black leg. And you are now whipping me, I and I agree. Okay, I stop. Sorry. I, I, will, I, I, will, I will be Stalin tonight, and I, I will try. And um, ah, what are we? Who is Bukharin? Who is Trotsky? Who is... Well, actually, um, we, I mean, uh, if somebody were Trotsky, we would have to erase him. Because in all of the images, as we know, um, he was in fact erased from history, from all the photographs. So there, there must be something, something there to But talk about. Can I make a brief remark? Sure. You will love it. Precisely with the case of Trotsky, I agree with you. You know what was Trotsky's mistake in the early and mid-twenties? No. He was too much abstract in the bad sense, not in your sense, essentialist. He did not see how to gain power, you know, Stalin was very bright. You know, just in 23, he nominated over 100,000 of mid-level bureaucrats and so on. He knew that power, and Trotsky was extremely arrogant. Trotsky came to Politburo session to boast with Flaubert in French. He was really like, I don't care. And then all of a sudden, in late 20s, Trotsky discovered he's like that cat above the precipice, you know. He looked down, there is nothing. He <laughs> fell down. So uh, this I deeply appreciate in contrast to what you think. I think that with regard to what I think subject, which is precisely an inhuman abstract subject, mm -hmm. I can, cannot find anything that would more fit to my notion of subject then what, for example, somebody like, although I know your differences with her, uh, uh, Jane Bennett describes as this, a transhuman assemblage and so on, I have no problem with totally asserting that. Okay. I have no problem. I'm not humanist. What, um, can you just, what is assemblage? Can you speak to assemblage. this? Maybe some of it's... Yes, this is the theory that uh, things are built together out of many components to mm -hmm. form one thing. Which are relatively independent, Yes, no? that's right. Mm -hmm. Like, as we already talked before, Trump is an assemblage. It's yeah. crucial to understand him that, uh, in the sense that he built his relative hegemony through assembling elements which have relative independence, a certain working class populism, a certain this, a certain that, and so on. And it's inconsistent, obviously. But beware, this inconsistency is his strength. Before we get into Trump, can I answer some of the points from yeah. your... Because there were so many interesting things there. I was going to maybe address three if I can. The first one, I'll <laughs> respond to the one about the essence of communism. First of all, there's 
a question as to whether there is such a thing as an essence of communism, or whether we're talking Mangos, about different no, faces. I'm good, essentially. You're yep. no historicist relativist. No, no, not at all, not at all. <laughs> Remember, I, in the book of materialism about the Dutch East India Company, I at least considered the possibility that there wasn't just one company, that it went through several different companies under the same name. I determined that, in fact, there was just one company. It was one thing. I obviously agree with you. In Leibniz. the same sense, I think there is one communism. Okay, all right. It's there too might be. cheap to say Stalin falsified it or whatever. Yes, that's right. Also, essences for me don't necessarily have to stay the same over time. They can develop. Absolutely develop with you. So it I agree with you. It's not bad essentialism that there's one platonic form that everything copies yeah. forever. I also talk about symbioses in my book, which are kind of in between mm. detailed changes and, and developmental uh, changes. So I think you'd have to look empirically at an individual case, like communism. So you'd have to be a historian working from a triple No, but background. would you nonetheless agree my central point was exactly in your sense. Communism, precisely as a universal movement notion, has an in itself. Yes. It's legitimate to ask where it was impenetrable to itself, sure. what potentials it didn't actualize. It's, or it's not a meaningless question. Some people treat it as if it were, and it's not, to ask what could it have been, what is it really about. And of course, every, every object has multiple objects that make it up. So communism has parts yeah. too, just like any other object. Sorry to interrupt so, you, but here again, I deeply agree with you. I would link this to that, your wonderful notion of proximate failure. Yes. Uh, you wanted to say something. No, I, I want to talk about that. Proximate failure, I have the idea in the book of materialism that one of the ways you recognize real objects is by looking for failures, not successes. Absolutely. Because if something exactly. succeeds too easily, it's probably just part of the environment, it's probably just yes. fitting in. Yes. Yes. When something fails, you know that it's a bit out of sync with the environment. And so I, t I talked about that in a few cases of the Dutch East India Company. In the book I just finished the other day for Penguin, an introduction to Triple O, for Pelican actually, I used the U.S. Civil War as an example. And when I'm talking about Grant and Lee as the two great generals of that war, I was looking at their failures, of which there were many prior to their successes, which I think was a proof of their greatness, the fact that they had these failures. Do you buy the theory which always intrigued me? I'm sorry, but it's it? such a nice conversation. <laughs> no? Do you buy the theory that at Gettysburg it could have turned otherwise? Yes. Just Grant forgot to put artillery on some hill there. It was okay. Meade. Grant wasn't in the east yet. Grant was still out west. But yeah, huh? Meade, Meade could have put the artillery. That, that's the key. The, it could have turned... Uh, the south could have won if Pickett's charge had succeeded, and Meade could have also chased down Lee and destroyed his army and ended the war. So there were several things that could have gone differently. It was a very contingent battle. However, I think the other, important, the other battles, two of them are more important in particular, but that's, that's another issue. Well, a civil war no, but you know what I wanted to ask you? Sorry. Yes. No, no, a very yep. precise question concerning this. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what interests me especially are not only this approximate failure in the sense of alternate history, what, mm -hmm. what, and I'm also like you, addicted to them, you know, all mm -hmm. the bullshit that we get now, men in the high castle, SS, yes. Great Britain, I'm an avid viewer oh, of yes. that. But isn't it also the other way around that often we get false opening in yes. the sense of we think that something is possible and it was just an accident that it didn't happen mm -hmm. but it was a deeper necessity That's for right. example here i remain an old-fashioned half marxist opposed to what my good friend very dignified person the catholic deridian john caputo yeah. he claimed why be against capitalism if you imagine a capitalism which, like Sweden in the 60s, uh, does welfare, this, that, and so on, that all this would be possible. Well, I doubt if this is possible. I think one of the tricks of politics is that something that appears as mere contingent failure, mm -hmm. oh my God, we could have done that, but we didn't, 
a deeper analysis of what you would call in itself can also discover not only that there was an option to do something else, but that what appeared to us as an opening really was none, that it couldn't mm -hmm. have happened. Mm -hmm. So here we should do a complex analysis. You agree, no? It's we should. In the Dutch East India Company case, it was two, the geographical points that were mm -hmm. inevitable. There were two straits in Indonesia that had to be captured by somebody. So that's one example. But can I ask you a Lacanian deep psychoanalytic, psychologizing question? Yeah. Because I love that book. Okay. I even told him before that, you know, in my communist universe where you don't have free reading, these official gray brochures are distributed to you, printed like Mao's red book in 10 million copies. Mm -hmm. In my communist empire, your immaterialism would be like great. distributed from elementary and people would be sent to Gulag if they forgot got to read your book. <laughs> no, but what I want to ask is, like, what, was, what attracted you to that stupid is Dutch company? Ah. What was the particular cause of desire the, partic there? the particular cause is that Leibniz makes fun of it and says that it's a pseudo-object because it's just a bunch of different parts together, right? He says that in the letters to Arnaud. So I wanted to say, no, the Dutch East India Company is an, an object. And this is one thing I don't like about the whole Aristotelian tradition, is that they use nature as the criterion of reality. If something's natural or simple, then it's going to be mm -hmm. real. Whereas we need to be able to talk about airplanes and universities and societies as objects. And uh, non-existing things. Yeah. But at least in a way, I think, don't you think that not only is there approximate failure, mm -hmm. but something that did not happen but could have happened, can as such as failure exert a terrifying influence? So I would go even further here than you. Mm. Like the whole gener generation could be ruined by something that they should have done, but they didn't do it. Sure. Yeah, there can be failed yeah. historical so, tasks, I think. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And they can ruin your life for decades and so yeah, on. Biographically too, right. Individuals yeah. can ruin their so lives. So again, here, you know, yeah. my problem with your immaterialism is that to be very brutal and cynical, uh, what you call immaterialism, I'm almost tempted to call materialism, no, you not. know. I'm not that primitive materialist who thinks to be materialism, it must be something that you grasp and so on. Uh, what I call mad is that it has to be in some sense contingent, open, non That's enough for me. Materialism has nothing to do with matter for me. Right, but remember, I quoted Levi Bryant asking them, why do you call it materialism? He was asking that about you in particular. What's the point of calling it materialism if it involves nothing material? Because, again, for example, again, look at quantum physics. Okay. It's, it's, in a way, matter without matter there. Waves, are they material, in what sense, and so on. And I don't have, I'm not, ah, why is it materialism? Because it's a certain contingency, openness, and so on. It's a certain purely formal structure, non-teleological, whatever, contingent, that defines materialism for me. All right. It doesn't have to be some hard... It, would you agree with this beautiful idea that came to me that paradoxically, in 19th century still, materialism meant brutal, tasteless reality. Mm -hmm. But today, and that's why I have here, you will kill me, you will hire a guy to break my fingers, some mafia friend, <laughs> because that's my problem with uh, Tarkovsky, the director. Mm -hmm. He's so spiritual, but at the same time, a brutal materialist. You know, for him, Tarkovsky, 
spiritual experiences when you even put your head into mud and so on and so on. So today, and it all began with Heideggerian finitude, is that idealists emphasize our limitation to body and so on, Mm -hmm. while materialists today have this freedom to move in total immaterial abstraction. But, okay, let's uh, get away. Strike back. Go All right. Materialism. The point for me is that matter, of course, means the unshaped material, the mother, etymologically, and I don't think there is such a thing. Right? There, there, okay, right, there are forms. So what would be the value of using materialism? I think usually the value is that it has a kind of leftist political cachet, that it has to do with the Enlightenment, and it has to do with critically tearing things down Can to the I ultimate... you, and you will agree with okay. me. Even see. here, and you will agree with it. Right. Uh, things are more complex. For example, mm-hmm. my other beloved, you see the depth of my Stalinist taste, Robespierre. <laughs> he opposed materialism. You know why? Because for him, it didn't have this leftist connotation. Mm -hmm. For him, and he was right, I claim, Mm -hmm. materialism was a brutal ideology of aristocracy in decay. Mm. So even this, you are too close, you buy too quickly this idea that materialism is always necessarily associated with the left. It's not necessary. No, it just has often been, you have to admit. Ah, I do, yeah. Okay, and... uh, there are two kinds of materialism. The traditional kind is you're reducing a thing to the ultimate matter of which it's made, and it generally was particles moving through a void. There's other variants of that. But when people talk about materialism today, they're talking about the other reduction, the upward reduction, that everything is contingent, socially constructed, that it involves our practices rather than ideas. And I don't really see the point of either of those because they both distract from the object which is in between those two extremes. Right? Yeah. I have right. no so, problem with okay. that. I have no problem. Okay. When I take power, you will go, if you will go to Gulag, it will not be for this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I wanted to say something about Heidegger also. Ah, perfect. And yeah. then something about quantum theory, maybe. Yeah. Uh, it was very interesting that you, that you were uh, making a criticism based on Heidegger because I always wonder about you how Heidegger fits into your narrative of the history of philosophy. Because you are in many ways a Hegelian, and many Hegelians will say that Heidegger is just a neo-Kantian relapse into transcendental philosophy. Uh, It's much more complex. Yes, good. No matter how we hate him politically, unfortunately, he is the real thing. He is Mm -hmm. one of the great philosophers. So what do you get in him that you don't get out of Hegel? Sorry? What do you get from Heidegger that you don't get from Hegel, since you find so much in Hegel compared to many people? Well, I'm here pretty much open. Do you get everything from Hegel? Hegel has certain limits. I'm very open here. For me, you know what interests me so much in Heidegger, and you should be interested in it? The proof that he is the ultimate, for me, transcendental philosopher, not in the Kantian sense, but in the sense that we are condemned constrained to a certain historical horizon meaning of being. And all we can do is hope for or await, lay the foundation for another. And he, you know that in some of his works, from early ones in late 20s, to his last seminar of Heraclitus, he simply admits, he says, okay, we have material objects. It's clear that the horizon of being, the way the meaning of reality is open to us, doesn't create these objects. Mm-hmm. So, and then he asked this naive question, so how do objects exist mm-hmm. outside the horizon of being, which is our way to apprehend them? And he admits it's a totally open question. He doesn't have anything to say about it. Yes, and that's the problem that he and Husserl shared, is they both considered... The reality is a kind of pseudo question, right? Because we're already, yeah, it's already outside of ourselves. Heidegger admitted it at the yes, end. Yes, he did. I, that the question yeah. persists. 
Right. Now, you asked what I'm getting out of Heidegger. Now, I admit that he's a transcendental philosopher and he, in terms of his self-conception. I think he sees himself that way, especially in Sein und Zeit. But what I think happens is something in the tool analysis that he doesn't quite realize that takes us in another place. Mm -hmm. You've got the tool analysis. Everything's working flawlessly, and then something breaks. And so you notice for the first time the, the floor that I was relying on. Here you have again your stupid proximate failure. Yes, no? yeah, that's, yeah, right. Sure. that's right. That's <laughs> right. Now, the usual reading of this yeah. is that uh, praxis comes before theory. First, we were using it practically, yeah, yeah. and therefore it's connected to all these other yeah, things, yeah. and now it's theoretical because mm -hmm. it broke. The problem is that theory and praxis aren't different enough, as I see it. Both theory and praxis are translating the object into their own terms. One is conscious, one is not conscious, but it doesn't really make a big difference, I don't think. And too many Heidegger scholars have read that as being the key difference. Praxis comes before theory. I think what's actually happening is... That's why, is, do you also oppose, although he's a nice guy, drive to his being in yeah, the world? I do. Is this the ultimate, almost pseudo-Marxist practice interpretation of Heidegger? Yes, he says that the background is something like a sociological understanding, so the Japanese yeah, babies yeah. are raised differently from American babies. I don't, mm -hmm. that, that doesn't go far enough. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. What's going on there is that there's something deeper than theory and praxis, and I think Heidegger could have been talked into that, what he probably wouldn't have agreed with, of course, is the idea that I have that there's something deeper, even in an inanimate causation, because he had no way to think about that at all. Two things smashing into each other where Dasein was not there at all. Heidegger has nothing really to tell us about that. He's enough of a Kantian that he's talking about... No, no, about what he would say, I agree with you, yep. is that, okay, two things, of course, can crash out there, but yep. the only way for us to make sense of it is to read it within our hermeneutic horizon and so on and so on. But I don't think that's true. Can I ask I, you a question yep. about that? Because sure. I think, Graham, you... you you bring up the story of two um, stars or two asteroids colliding yes. near a distant star, mm -hmm. and there is um, an astronomer who captures the image in a photograph. Mm -hmm. um, how do you describe these different, uh, you would call them objects, uh, different relations? And um, can we insert another kind of, um, another kind of participant, let's say? So here, um, uh, to, to kind of bring it forth maybe a, for, a fourth in, and this is where I would like to maybe transition us back a little bit to Earth, to say that there's not only a, an astronomer with a camera out there in space, but also, let's say, the eye of somebody, an eye of a subject, an eye of somebody, let's say, like Trump. Uh, you know, uh, Trump is watching. Let's say Trump, a Trump, uh, well, the French would say Loy, a Trump Loy, mm -hmm. uh, out there, and producing a kind of, uh, another kind of uh, narrative, let's say, about this event. Narrative. An alternative, perhaps, reality. How would, how would you begin to describe now this quadruple uh, looking at each other? I'm trying to avoid the temptation to unload on Trump right now. Um, but Trump would have probably read it as, you know, something sexual, well, two bodies hitting each other. I think oh in a way, <laughs> well, it, it, comes back to, it comes back to a couple of concerns that, that were already brought up. Uh, one concern is, is there such a thing as a subject without, without let's say, an object? No. Or no, is, is there agree. such a thing as a subject who is uh, a, a kind of, uh, what did you call it, a kind of collage, not collage, but um, assemblage of, of things? And how, how do we produce a sense of reality? What does it mean to... Interesting, and, and for me, reality is a more important word than truth, because truth to me implies that somebody thinks they can, they can get it. It's not just out there, but they yeah. can get it. Whereas reality for me means that you're, you're doing something and then there's the proximate failure that's alerting you to something that you're doing wrong. And I think that's, that's why I wasn't so happy with the narrative about post-truth politics. Because who really had the political truth to begin with? But I think we're in a phase of post-reality politics. And I, Berta Latour wrote an interesting article about Trump that you can read in the Los Angeles Review of Books online for free, where 
he made an interesting case. He said Trump is not a fascist, because at least as Latour reads fascism, it's a kind of fake attempt to bring back the Greek and Roman yeah, polis yeah, yeah, combined yeah, with technology. Yeah, yeah. You agree? Oh, good. And he said what Trump really is is an escapist, because what are really the political issues? Climate change, refugees, yeah. and he's simply pretending they don't exist. And so it's a denial of reality more than a, an attempt to say an untruth. He's not making contact with political realities that we need to be dealing with right now. So that's probably a better way to, I think I'm persuaded perhaps, by that. Perhaps that's the mode of operation, but then there is a kind of audience on the other side who right. might not be able to distinguish mm -hmm. between, oh, sure. let's say, the, but, the, uh, the photograph uh, and the, the fiction. But back to Trump, sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with this description, mm -hmm. and I also agree that Trump is not a fascist. You know why? Because would you agree with this? The majority of leftists are, I agree, I'm here very critical of most of them, are often lazy, which means when there is something new emerging mm -hmm. and uh, they see it's bad, mm -hmm. but they are too lazy to really think what is happening, mm -hmm. the easiest thing is to apply a non-term. Oh, it's neo-fascism, fascism, mm -hmm. and so on. It's not. Even I claim, look, we have to analyze all this. Like, they claim, oh, Trump dismissing immigrants or European mm -hmm. new right is the same as Nazi anti-Semitism. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. Moshe Postone, the Chicago Marxist, otherwise I don't often agree with him, pointed out nicely the difference. For the Nazis, Jews were not simply out there invading us. Jews were already here in Germany, the secret masters pulling the strings. Mm. While nobody claims immigrants invading, I don't like this term, I sympathize with them, Europe are secret masters, and mm. so on. It's a totally different logic. So again, the, the way, here I read your point about failures and so on. Mm. What I'm afraid of is, again, escapism can be very effective politically, even if Trump is an escapist. It can work for a couple of years. couple you know, of years? Even more, even okay. more, yes. Yeah, so my point is, don't be like, be, don't try to avoid what I call, although I love him, I often watch him, John Stewart syndrome, you know, or we are so much wiser, we make fun of Trump and so on and so on. Well, we make fun of him, but he may have the last laughter at least for, for a couple well, of years. Maybe, you know? maybe a question is then, if he's... Um so, Who, Trump? If Trump is so good at making reality unfamiliar to us, and I'm here now coming back to some of the terms that, that maybe come up in, in conversation, um, there is a kind of defamiliarization, and this is something that, you know, uh, yeah. Graham, we've talked a little bit about um, Shklovsky's term, uh, astraninia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if this is already... Usually they translate it, sorry, extraneation, I think. Extraneation? No, the reason to is to avoid uh, alienation. Right, but estrangement might work? Estrangement. 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 Yes. If this is, uh, let's say, happening at the level of uh, a kind of political message, um, isn't life today appearing more like art? If that is a technique of art, and all of a sudden it is in life, what are we to do with this? I've always been really moved by a remark by the novelist J.G. Ballard, who said that the role of the artist has reversed in our time. He said, in the past, the artist produced fictions. Yeah. Now we're surrounded by fictions. The artist has to produce the reality. Mm -hmm. And so I think yeah, it's easy for, for Trump's people to produce all these alternative narratives, alternative facts. But ultimately, you have to have a politics that's believable because it's grounded in some reality. So the fictions what, is, what is then the representation of reality? Because if... Um, if reality has a certain, a certain modality, let's say, certain mm -hmm. kinds of formats, and, and let's say we're meant to produce now reality instead of mm -hmm. fiction, what are the techniques for doing that? 
Haha. Ha. Yeah, <laughs> I graciously allow you <laughs> to answer this one. <laughs> one of them is looking for places where things are failing. Eh, absolutely. Yes. Right? <laughs> I been... would have called follow the antagonism ideology is for me to obfuscate the antagonism. Yes. To project it onto an external enemy and so on and so on. Yes. Sorry, go on. No, no, that's, that's my best answer. Uh, <laughs> No, where I, we should agree again is, I hope we do that. Uh, although, as you would have put it, I agree with you here, there is no direct access to, access to reality. Yes. So we shouldn't play simply the game that ideology we have a direct access. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, not everything is simply ideology. That's right. It mm -hmm. matters how much you re register the very inconsistencies, cracks, failures, and mm -hmm. so on and so on. Do you think I was fair in worrying that you are identifying ideology with realism? Is it more complicated than that? What I, I made the remarks what about... What do you mean by realism here? Well, it seems in the blind object of ideology, like you're, you're ascribing to the anti-Semite a realist's metaphysical position, that the problem is they're saying there really is Jews out there that have an essence, and that's where anti-Semitism comes from. And what, what makes me worry about that is it makes it seem like you're blaming realism for being a form of ideology. I see, okay, I see. would mm, have to mm. go to more in detail, but okay. I, 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 uh, um, I share your fear here. You know where... I have a, where I have a follow up. I have a follow up after. Okay, I'm sorry. You know where I share your fear, but I would complicate things. Okay. What I mean by criticizing realism is this. Uh, and that's where comes what I mentioned there, this secret essence of the Jew. Look, mm. uh, Ernesto Laclau, my otherwise good friend for some time at least, claimed that uh, an anti-Semitic subject always gets caught in a paradoxical tension. You cling to anti-Semitism, Jews are evil, and so on and so on. But then you, can, you happen to live with a, close to a neighbor who is a kind old Jew, and then you cannot bring the two together. Your right. ideological thesis, Jews are evil, and the kind old Jewish gentleman who is there. Mm -hmm. uh, I told once Ernesto, wait a minute, look at me, old European fascist. Don't you know what is anti-Semitism? It's easy to bring them together. A true anti-Semite would instantly answer, you see, that's why Jews are dangerous. They are really evil, but they mask this through their kind appearance, you know. That's the, the magic of anti-Semitism is that all the facts are reinterpreted as... Uh, 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 showing their opposite, but I want to say, sorry, very briefly, uh, another thing about this Ostranenje rendering strange. I think, nonetheless, we should not confuse two things. One is Ostranenje, and here I see the danger of Trump. It's more that Ostranenje, sorry, this estrangement, in the sense that Things that were unthinkable ten years ago to be openly racist, to advocate torture and so on, are now all of a sudden acceptable, they no longer even surprise us. That's the tragic sign of regression for me. Trump is for me not only economic, political, but even, uh, not even moral, a catastrophe at the level of public decency. So do you regret having seemed to have supported him over Hillary no, Clinton? No, no, absolutely. Don't. Why not? Because I will tell you why. Yeah, it's yeah. my very simple party line. Mm -hmm. I think that we should never forget, and I may, I may be wrong, I'm not dogmatically mm -hmm. clinging to it, mm -hmm. that uh, Trump's success is a symptom, symptom, not in any deep right. psychoanalytic sense, the result of the failure of the liberal center and left. 
And if we don't address that problem of this leftist hegemony which failed, which is failing not only in the United States mm -hmm. but also in Europe and so on, mm -hmm. we will not get rid of Trump. So the crucial task for me is to change something in this left liberal field, to move it maybe a little more to should it even call it left? I have the same mm -hmm. doubts as you about left, right, and so on. Otherwise, Trump will just return. That's not the key point. So my crazy hope was that it's maybe worth to take the risk, Trump, to mobilize, to bring something like more Bernie Sanders, whatever, and so on and so on. This is why the truly dangerous person today for me, for example, is Nancy Pelosi. Because she is precisely renormalizing the situation. Mm -hmm. She made recently an interview where she said, don't worry, we had Reagan for eight years, we had Bush, we will have Trump, things go normal and so on. No, Trump mm -hmm. is really a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. so, Sorry, can yeah. I pick up the um, term symptom that you, that you brought up? Yes. Because I think, um, and th this is uh, from the sublime object of ideology, yeah. so we come back a few years, you know, a couple mm -hmm. of decades mm -hmm. back. If the symptom is something that we can kind of borrow from psychoanalysis, but originally you trace it quite beautifully back to Marx. Um, Lacan says this. Marx uh, Lacan says symptom, Mac yeah. Marx, uh, Marx kind of yeah. brings up the idea of symptom as the kind of access of yeah, yeah. ideology. So um, would it be possible to bring this into architecture in the following way? That, uh, let's say, buildings are a sort of symptom of ideology. That, that they are exactly at the intersection of capitalist desire and also they produce a kind of, um, uh, a pro well, let's say a problem, uh, but also in visualization of authorship. Um, how do we see these, uh, the, how, do we, how do we understand buildings as symptoms of both capitalism and authorship as a kind of if I may dichotomy add between A brief improvisation to provoke you, then you should take <laughs> over. Can I just add something to that Ostranenje uh, 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 estrangement mm -hmm. stuff? That would be the simple, this simple ideological regression. But I think we should not confuse this, like what in the way Trump estranged us from old liberal certainty, with another, like here. It may surprise you, but although I, don't, I know you don't agree with her. For example, the way, uh, uh, the way Jane Bennett describes the famous trash site with mm -hmm. all the interacting, mm -hmm. that for me, the true productive estrangement, something that you consider simply an affair of human desires when you posit humans as interacting with biological processes, organic, inorganic, you get a certain inhuman view of the situation. And that fascinates me absolutely. So, it's more complex. But to go back to symptoms, you know, I prefer not to use this term too much because in psychoanalysis it has a very precise meaning. It's especially, symptom is never just a symptom. Lacan plays with this term symptom like a knot. Mm -hmm. Symptom is really what holds the subject together. If you dissolve the symptom, it's not you get the truth. Usually you get a psychotic breakdown and so on. Mm -hmm. Symptom is precisely not just a symptom in the sense of a sign of some real thing going on. For example, to refer can you, to... Can you relate it to... To what you, you said. Can you relate it to authorship? I mean, Sorry, to... Can you relate it to authorship? Let's say uh, all buildings by Frank Gehry are symptoms of his, uh, I don't know, uh, author function. 
Why, why I would prefer even not to use the term symptom? You know, if we go to, and my God, I talk too much, you should uh, <laughs> counterattack. You know what fascinates me in architecture? It was already quoted today. In what sense, at least a certain, maybe I'm universalizing it too much, modern architecture, all these great projects, Corbusier and so on, it's clear that they not only react to certain social problems, antagonisms, mm -hmm. but they propose, for example, the new urban design and so on, separating place to sleep, place to work, place to have fun, as, as a solution to these problems. And second, this is why my arch enemy, if you ask me, and here Frank Gehry is not totally innocent, are, I think, one thing to bomb today are these public performative venues, you know, the idea is operas, concert calls, shouldn't be just elitist operas, you should have there amusement parks, cafeterias, open public space, it's pure absolute lie. These are open spaces which are themselves isolated under the cupola and so on. But another thing, so in this sense, you cannot understand architecture, and I'm not saying the ultimate truth about architecture here. You can argue in a more formalist way, but what fascinated me, another thing about, yeah. for example, this is my true love, I must admit it, the classical Stalinist architecture, wedding cake and so on. You know what fascinated me there so much? Something that in ideology you were absolutely prohibited to say, that Soviet Union claimed to be an egalitarian worker state. It was in reality an extremely almost neo-feudal uh, hierarchic state. Mm -hmm. You just look at the buildings and you see it. Mm -hmm. And the, this is the beautiful paradox. It's not as a kind of a dissident act. Mm -hmm. You had to do it like this. It was in, uh, like if you wanted to undermine Stalinism. You needn't to go, you just looked at the building. Stalinist official binding, and you see the lie of official ideology. It confirms this uh, idea to me, deep Freudian idea, that you cannot totally lie. Truth is somehow always articulated. What do we say about the same exact place, um, maybe only 15 years earlier, um, having a kind of formalist moment of abstraction um, and then uh, somehow killing it. You I, know, mean, I, I think this is something that we can relate a yeah, little bit to today. I know what you mean. I think we can relate it to today because if uh, Hutemas closes uh, in, the, in the 20s, hmm. if Bauhaus closes in the 30s, if we're now entering a difficult time period, we're not quite sure where we are chronologically. Yeah. The question, on the one hand, is um, what are we to do? Uh, we're here in a uh, I'm liberal, architectural question or a general? I think it's an institutional question of knowledge. So let's say it's an architecture question on the one hand, but it can be broader than that. What, what are we to do as um, those who produce knowledge? Uh, do, uh, have we entered the 21st century? Are we repeating the 20th? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, here at SIRC, I guess, well, well, I think we are, but my God, I talk too much. I just, but you I'm, want I'm, to do it. Actually, I'm curious to hear from you because um, 
You is both of us singular. I'm curious to hear from Graham first. But, yes, can I, I answer first the question about yeah. buildings as symptoms of capitalism okay. or neoliberalism? Which people like because this is a flat abstract statement. Exactly. I don't think you learn a lot. You don't. And what I'm worried about is that usually that statement is a way of gaining the moral high ground in a debate. Yes. So then yes, you can yes. talk down to everyone. And so Triple O says all objects are equal, and Alexander Galloway writes an article saying we think humans are garbage because we're the equal of garbage. I mean, come on. There's, there's no intellectual content in that claim. He's simply trying to look down on us from above. And this is what I worry that's about. That's the problem, and, sorry, with political correctness. Yes, that's right. For me. It, that's right. The more white people who act politically correct, mm. the more they apparently humiliate themselves. The mm. more they gain in this pleasure of, but by humiliating ourselves, by assuming guilt yes. for everything, we, uh, we assume the high moral ground and so on. Slava, mm -hmm. I'm cutting you off for one minute. Oh, one minute. Five minutes. Uh, no, Graham. one minute's fine. Uh, Let's make a I deal, three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, there's obviously a sense in which buildings can be read as symptoms of whatever period they're in, but I'm not sure that's the right move to make right now. I think we need a formalist move at the moment, as unfashionable as it is. We need to look at the building as cut off from its surroundings, just like we need to do with the artwork, but without the, the drawback of the earlier formalism, which is that it tried to exclude anything outside the work itself. That isn't always the case. Sometimes the work does let other influences permeate. And so in art criticism, for example, you had Clement Greenberg's formalism, which I have some sympathies with, but he ends up too much against performance art, conceptual arts, installations, mm. these things. But you can have those things and still have it be an autonomous formal unit. So you can have performers. What do you mean exactly by formalism? I suppose the way you could define formalism is that a thing is autonomous from its surroundings. That would be the first step. I think in, in modernity it also takes on a second meaning, which I don't like, which is that the cutting off of the subject from the object. So in Kant's aesthetics, for yeah. example, aesthetics is all going on here. It's not going on out yeah. there. And then in Fried and Greenberg, I think it reverses. It's all out there. It's not here. And that's why Fried hates theatrical aesthetics. Anything theatrical is bad. And in formal ethics, of course, in Kant's, I think it's the only place he uses the term formalism is in his ethics, yeah. not in the other parts. And formalism in ethics, of course, is the idea that it has nothing to do with the consequences or the content of the acts. It has to do with following the pure formula of duty. And I think we, we would do well to get over that. I mean, the most powerful critique of Kant's ethics still was probably Max Scheler's. I know you like Hegel's, but Max Scheler's critique is that an ethics has to do with our love for something, something that we're passionate about, something that we are drawn to and that we make a major topic of our lives. And so in a sense, the basic ethical unit is not us. The basic, basic ethical unit is us plus what we love. This will be Scheler's position. And I tried to show this through a reading of Dante in my last book. That this is what Dante is about as well. Dante is about an ethics of love. It's about your attachment to things. And what's the lowest sin in Dante? It's fraud, which is a false attachment. It's pretending to be attached to something that you're not, such as family or country or friends mm. that you then betray. So, so uh, Trump, no, in, uh, Trump would be the sinner for... Where would you put Trump in the... But isn't he a fraud exactly in this sense? He pretends America first and so on. He's, yeah, yeah, he's a fraud in almost every sense. But, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what really, maybe I'll go off topic here, but I really need to say this to get it out of my system. We've known this guy for 30-some years, and we knew what a clown he is, and yet we elect him anyway after all this time. And uh, I could see the American public going through a phase of thinking we need a businessman to fix everything. We had Perot in the early 90s. There was mm -hmm. this kind of phenomenon. But he's not even a good businessman. He's made his business out of cheating people, out of... Uh, shafting contractors he's, and employees. He seems to be a real estate developer, so maybe we... Yeah, but I agree with you. But maybe I we mean, can... Uh, get, I, how yeah. do you feel about opening it up to the audience? But listen, uh, what so he was doing was sure. going from one bankruptcy to another exactly. and somehow making yes. the taxpayers pay for his debt and squeezing right. out 
right. he's not what he pretends to be, a successful individual, big capitalist, and so on and so on. And unlike you, I'm not optimistic that something good will come of this. I think so much damage could be done that there's not going to be a chance to do anything better. I think we're losing too many basic things, and that's why I went for Hillary, despite... Maybe yeah, but not be Hillary, my for me, is such a tragedy. Okay. But could it preserve some yeah, things? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, some maybe, things. maybe. Let's draw. No, but, but sorry, just uh, what, mm. what you mentioned about, uh, what were you talking about just before this? Uh, uh, symptoms. Capitalist yeah, symptoms. Yeah, formalism and so on. Yes. But you know, I try to be also a formalist. I think mm. all good Marxists are formalists mm. in the sense that you don't project some social antagonism onto, mm. uh, social antagonism onto it. I think that, for example, that's how, at my best, which is not always the case, I, I dismiss many of my cinema analysis as just, mm. I use brutally examples to make a theoretical point, nothing to do with films. But sometimes when I write about Tarkovsky, about Hitchcock mm. and so on, I try to be a formalist. I think that to get even at social context of Hitchcock, mm -hmm. for example, for me, the supreme scene, the second mm -hmm. murder of Detective Arbogast in Psycho, the way camera moves up and so on, you have an entire implicit theology and so on there. Mm -hmm. I think that for me, formalism and social analysis do not exclude themselves Social analysis does not mean immediate content analysis mm -hmm. is a bourgeois, a hero, or whatever. And even with architecture, my God, you should like... Do you, Psycho is, for me, one of the great works about architecture. Because the basic tension of the film is precisely horizontal, vertical. Mother's house, modeled of, on Edward... Uh, on, I think it was on, on, on Hopper or what, that mm -hmm. mother's house, and all those mote, motels mm -hmm. against, it, it's against two types of traditional mother's house and modern flat uh, motel, mm -hmm. Bates motel. So I ironically, in my analysis of Psycho, I ask myself, because the whole tension of Norman Bates is, He's literally a guy caught between the two. Traditional architecture, mm -hmm. mother's house, and mm -hmm. modern motel. But what if, because this is still a modernist opposition, what if we move into what in popular terms is called postmodernism and imagine a motel mm -hmm. which is itself flat but done with all the traditional kids ornaments that you don't need mother's house up there. Mother house would be put as a mask on the motel itself. What would happen in that case with Norman Bates, you know? I rather don't think about it, right. you know. So just to avoid this, I deeply sympathize with your idea of formalism. Mm -hmm. That I am absolutely opposed to this vulgar reading of mm -hmm. projecting some social content and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. All great artists formalists. I think your, your analysis of Tarkovsky, the slowing down of the frame, completely slowing down to yeah. beyond, it's, it's a kind of slowing down of reality, which becomes its own mode of abstraction. That's, that to me... Ah, that's is, a beautiful reading. Really, I yeah. agree with you, but we talked before that... I would like to open yeah. it up. Is it okay if we open it up to, sure. the, to the audience? Maybe. No, no, can I just add another thing? Very briefly. No? The way I would have answered you when you said reality and so on, would be nonetheless, maybe this is our misunderstanding. Reality is constructed in the simple sense that what we perceive as social reality is different from one society, but, but 
But I'm not a social constructivist. There right, is right. the real, there are traumas and so on. So I am, my ultimate enemy even is this cheap deconstructionism, like everything is socially constructed. Yeah. Yeah. We, we share this. Except that the real is not reality and the objet A is not my object. So we still have those differences. Well, uh, I will put it in this way to end up in a comical way. Leave this to the KGB unit that will investigate you to say what is your object. <laughs> the party will look into it and okay. inform you about it. <laughs> Sorry, let's go. But you get the point how the two of us, we may appear totally opposed. And that's what I found. And all of a sudden there are these... Uh, uh, unexpected interconnections and so on, which is why I agree with him precisely where he doesn't even agree with his own guys like how you criticize Latour and all those uh, relationists and mm -hmm. insist on fixity, identity, that's absolutely crucial for me. And here you are, although you would kill me for saying this, a good Hegelian, as good readers of Hegel, like the friend Gerard Leblanc demonstrated. Hegel is absolutely not this kind of universal mobilist. Everything develops and so on and so on. Okay, stop. But I still, I still like the thing in itself and you don't. That's a big difference. I do, but I would redefine it as thing in itself as you said, my God. It's not simply out there. It's in the cracks here and so on. You said this. You provided a wonderful formulation. Why also you, you are totally right, criticized Mayor Sue. We don't arrive and think in itself by, Not you provide it uh, by abstracting yeah. and then trying how are things independent. Yeah. I totally agree with you that the problem is that we are part of the thing itself. Mm -hmm. We are not here and think itself is out there. Are you talking about a kind of death of abstraction? I mean, is this... No, we are all for abstraction. No, abstraction. <laughs> and for me, as a Hegelian, yeah, yeah. again, yeah. abstraction is part of reality. Abstraction is not you move out of reality. That's the whole paradox. Reality can be abstract. Then I stay on stage. Okay. Sorry? Then I will stay on stage. Let it be. For some time, Central Committee allows you to... <laughs> now, you know, this is Stalinist opportunism. You are left-wing deviation, you are right-wing deviation, and I'm the party line making tactical alliances with Bukharin, with Trotsky. Killing the bureaucracy. Yeah, bureaucracy. Sorry, let's yeah. go on. But I cut you off. You, I feel you think have some final thought. Uh, that I'm still more willing to... Do, I do think the thing in itself is out there. I just don't think it's knowable. So we do still disagree on that. Yes, but again, the problem for me is that precisely as such, mm -hmm. for example, let's take communism. At what level is for you communism a thing in itself? The fact that communism is not completely actualized in any of its effects or in, I agree. Or in any of the components yes. to build it up. But isn't it that it is a thing in itself, mm -hmm. but as such it is in some sense, the effect of people interacting. Sure, every object is. And but, then we agree, but, but go to but. The but is that the object is emergent, it isn't reducible to those pieces. It, it has, absolutely well, okay. agree. So absolutely. we agree about that. As a good Hegelian, I absolutely agree. Okay. No, no, that's what Hegel calls idea. For Hegel, idea is not something, it's not a platonic idea out there. But, and that's what Hegel makes it clear. I agree with you here. Nonetheless, we cannot simply say it's just a fetishized effect. All that really exists are, uh, are human people, actual people. All this, I really dislike it, early Marx metaphorics of the only actual things are real people producing. No, in itself, 
although it doesn't exist as this concrete object, it also exists, it exerts causality, efficiency. I totally agree with you here. You wanted to say something? I'm done. We are so merciful, we even allow... No, sorry, but didn't you want to play democracy? Didn't we do it? Did we not do this? No, by democracy, I mean... Yes, 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 yes. Does anybody want to ask a question? I think there must be a microphone somewhere. I already criticized her before that she didn't organize it in a proper communist way. Free debate, but you must distribute There's the questions in advance to, <laughs> to prevent fascist provocations. Yes. <laughs> All right, um, I know Graham. We met in New York a while back. And I've been to our Zizek lecture quite a few times. But here, I think, I think we need to clarify what, the, what is at stake in this conversation between two philosophers. The audience is primarily architects. So um, I've been reading on speculative realism for quite some time. And the basic moral, if you can call it moral, is that we are working towards an alien ontology of architecture such that architecture, since its inception, except with the Babylonian and the Greeks, is a massive project of humanity. So that architecture is man written large, so to speak. And we project our image onto the landscape such that that kind of a man-subject world relationship between man and world is such a correlation structure that we cannot see very. So then you come, you have Miyasu with the, to break up the correlation structure. And then you have Graham, that, that, the, such, that break up such that so radical that the object in itself, which is can't think in itself, is unknowable. And this is just your assertion, because modern science tells us that objects have varying degrees of knowability, accessibility. So it's not that we're completely so voluntary, so asserting ignorance, so to speak. Now, in that, uh, in, with this very complex structure, so the two characters that, I, that I've managed to synthesize is Kant, notion of synthetic a priori judgment, hmm? from which, out of which the transcendental imagination springs forth, and according to Catherine Malibu's assessment is that the difference between Hegel and Heidegger is that Hegel manages to Christianize Kant's notion of the transcendental, transcendental but in the case of Heidegger, he re-injected temporality from a phenomenological standpoint. So there's no temporality, even though there's an end of history in Hegel, but you don't have that kind of a gross, overarching metaphysics of time in Heidegger. So you insert temporality so that there's a time past, time present, and time future. And that you, re- you re-insert finitude as opposed to infinite of the absolute in Hegel. Now, okay, that's, so that's first connection. The second connection is through Leibniz. And Leibniz is a grossly underestimated philosopher so that we completely missed out on Leibniz because he was, the one, he was the first person who came up with the concept of computation. So the, re- the reason I'm mentioning, that, mentioning this is that we need a computational ontology of architecture such that computation has its own object in itself. So we don't have that kind of linkages because the, the modern notion of computation for architects, we use computation from representational notion of computation as opposed to non-representational use of computation. So we have to go to a non-representational use of computation. And if you look at cellular automata, right, one-dimensional cellular automata has 256 rule sets, and that's, those rule sets are autonomous. And that is the equivalent, the formal axiomatic equivalent of the thinking itself. So if you instantiate that Turing machine, with the uh, one say or mother, the sheep behaved on its own being. So you no May longer need architecture. Yeah. So, 
So, uh, so we need that kind of a synthesis of Leibniz, the transcendental subjectivity, with, with the formalism of the synthesis of formalism of Leibniz, metaphysics of Leibniz, with the Hegelian synthetic a priori. Just right now, maybe. you begin. <laughs> my, my knowledge of your background is that you're very sympathetic to Mayerson's position. Uh, I'm, but you, okay. I'm not sure what you think the merit of a computational architecture would be in terms of getting at the thing in itself. I can see other merits. I can see procedural merits in having all this parametric software and things like this. But in what sense is computational architecture going to get us at the thing itself? That's what I don't get. Because I don't agree with, I don't agree with this mathematical line about you and Mayer. Yeah. So I'm not sure how. So that's ideological subject. See, right. what I'm saying is that if you take one of the cell that is an object in itself. It's, it's not our invention. A cellular automaton? Cellular automaton, yes. Okay, maybe. No, it's not maybe. It's, it's, a, it's as simple as that. I think it's too reductive, but I think we should move on because it sounds like you have a, a more a wider architectural If you don't accept program. the competence ontology, then you're going to move. So this has to do with the subject and object. So I'm not sure I followed that, but maybe we should talk about this later. Maybe we should... Somebody has a short question. It might be easier to deal with. Can I just briefly make a short point? Oh, sure, sure. In, as always, in defense of Hegel, you know, it's for me, if I understood you correctly, way too simple to dismiss Hegel as reducing temporality and so on and so on. First, Hegel, what Hegel calls, calls absolute as vision, absolute knowing, mm -hmm. has nothing to do with now is the end of history, mm -hmm. I know everything. Right. Uh, Hegel, uh, uh, it's so interesting to... For example, Hegel's philosophy of right mm -hmm. is often misread, you know, that corporate vision of state developed there, mm -hmm. as if he's presenting the ultimate model of how society should be. But how can we forget what Hegel says in the famous foreword to philosophy of right, where he says, you know, the old of Minerva takes yes. off in the earth, which means, he says, when we can bring to concept, conceptualize, a certain social order, it means its time has passed, it's over. Was Hegel really such an idiot that he didn't know that the same must held for his own philosophy of right? So he's not describing a kind of ideal corporate model. He's describing something that is already disappearing and going on. Hegel is much more open. Read his philosophy of history. He was not an empirical idiot. In his philosophy of history, in the introduction, apropos, it's not bad if you consider it was not written but uh, recorded, registered by his pupils, 1820, when he approaches United States and Russia. He says, it's too early to say what these countries are spiritually. Theirs will be the next century. Yeah. Hmm. No, it's not so stupid. So what yeah. I mean is that Hegel's on top, what Hegel calls absolute knowing is a kind of a limit. I don't need a mic. I, Graham, I just want to... Sorry, yes. Question. I, I have an opportunity tomorrow. I would like to paraphrase Mm. He wasn't asking you about digital architecture. He was painting the composition of a digital ontology, which begins in Turing and is gone all the way today to Ted Mark. So the argument is that digital, that computational methods, computational methods are an adequate ontology 
for all actions of matter. You in your book also acknowledge that that is a position that you uh, do not um, subscribe to. His argument about representation is when you speak of objects and things, to a computational ontologist, you're looking at representations of a computational ontology. So he's simply asking you to address the issue that you mention in your book, but you don't actually which unfold. Book, which book was this? In Immaterialism, you mention a philosopher and several people that are working in the, uh, new, new materialism that would like to use physics and science as a reductive ontology, and one version of that is computational methods. For example, Turing's argument that all, beha- all mathematical behavior can be made um, can be worked out through Turing's method. And now we think, and most scientists, Tegbark is the one most recently who argued, that there is no process in the universe that cannot be mathematically described. Meaning every material process, whether animate or inanimate, can be mathematically in principle described. That constitutes a fundamental ontology. If that is a fundamental ontology and a flat ontology, it also connects bodies to glasses. But if you talk about bodies and glasses, you're talking about representations of that ontology. And all Carl is asking you is what's your position on that? It wouldn't be a flat ontology for one thing, because then you'd be saying that the lowest level is the real level and everything else is simply made up out of these computations. So uh, that would be what I call undermining, where you're simply trying to go to the smallest level, the most basic level, and using that to explain everything else. And one of the problems with that is it does not explain what we call emergence, and uh, meaning that certain qualities and certain properties appear at levels above the most basic one. And it's not really so much a question of whether the higher level properties can be predicted, because in a lot of cases they can. A lot of times you bring two people together, you know exactly what's going to happen. It doesn't matter. The fact that what happens is different from the two individuals. You know, marriage, you might know exactly this marriage is going to be a disaster. Those two people never should have gotten married. The fact that you were right about it doesn't change the fact that the marriage is different than either of the individuals. And a flat ontology would have to include a reference to all those different scales of individuals, not just cellular automata, not just mathematical descriptions. And even if it's true that you could do a mathematical description of everything in the universe, you could also do a description in language of everything in the universe. It doesn't mean everything's just language. So the universal applicability of a method does not mean that... Uh, you can do a, an, ont- an ontology that exhausts everything in that way. That's why. I, oh, there it goes. Can I maybe add something here, maybe sure. to help you? Yeah. You know, going to Badiou, and I know Badiou very well, my God, we are friends. Yeah. I don't think he would agree with your description. His, the key feature of his mathematical ontology, the idea is mathematics-based ontology, is that this ontology is not a kind of a 
Turing-style flat description. It is inconsistent, necessarily inconsistent, full of gaps and so on. And there he sees the opening. In spite of this, my very friendly critique of Badiou would have been that, okay, he has this ontology of mathematics, multiplicity of multiplicities, and then I don't think, and he has basically three levels. This pure ontology, then he has his phenomenology, which means the world, mm -hmm. and then he has the event. Mm -hmm. How does a world emerge of this pure mathematical ontology? How does an event explode in a world? I don't think he has a good theory. That's why, incidentally, being aware of this problem, He's always writing another book. Now he's writing the third book. So again, I think that... Carl, maybe, you, maybe we can invite you to dinner and you can join us. So no, right. what, what I'm just Event is a great book. Everyone should buy. Yeah. Sorry? I love, I love Event. Your book uh, about so how everything, book? everything is a, sequen a sequence of uh, events and everything sort of a catastrophe. My question for you... Who is you? Sort of short. My name's Elliot Rose. No, no, no. Oh, who is you? you? Who is you? Yeah, me, yeah. You. No. Yeah. So you describe in the parallax view Lenin's sort of attraction to abstract art, sort of unrelated. Um, I was wondering if you see any sort of similar attractions from today's leader into something sort of that seems unrelated, because you describe it as... Um, there's no relation between these fascist abstract art makers and Lenin's political views, but in a way they're both... Why fascist? Sorry, why fascist? I believe, I believe that's how it was... Crypt I believe that's how you wrote it. <laughs> I think it was like they, was, they were part of um, supporters of fascist regimes, or not, if not supporters, members, or etc. But... This was about the torture chambers at the beginning of Parallax? Yeah, that was, that was a great... I love that. Oh, but that was... Okay, but this but, was, um, but the, question, the question is... That seems... I, I've been talking with people about it, and they say, well, the, the similarity where it comes together is revolution. So they sort of revolt in art. He sort of revolts in politics. So there is sort of, even if not immediately apparent, a sort of... There is a connecting factor. So I was wondering maybe if... No. You see any parallaxes in today's no. leaders to, with similar see, sort of see, stuff. No, what, what fascinated me at that point that it's so popular, that was the avant-garde dream. What Bolsheviks did in politics, we are doing in art. But what fascinates me is how nonetheless these two levels, for some structural reason, cannot ever come together. In the sense that you will never get a politician who would, you know, I think it's a deep necessity that all big Bolshevik leaders were, in their art tastes, pretty traditional, and so on. So this is, an this is what interests me, how I agree that they are in some way parallel, but nonetheless they cannot come together. The illusion of constructivists and so on was that they will come together. They will basically, it's a very vicious reading expecting the Bolshevik state to recognize them, like, we are in art, what you are doing in politics. And although Bolsheviks were pretty progressive here, for example, people don't take this into account. Did you see the disgusting movie, uh, Dangerous Method? Kira Knightley as that, uh, Sabine Spielrein or who, the patient of Jung who turned to Freud. 
But the movie stops at the crucial moment. You know what happens with her afterwards? She moved to Soviet Union. She established in early 20s the first psychoanalytic Freudian kindergarten. Where? In Kremlin. You know that... Uh, it's, uh, okay, I don't want to get it. So what fascinates me in this that sometimes phenomena which move at the... which are really the same tendency in a different level in politics, in art, for this very reason cannot connect in reality. Has to remain disparate. Here also we should be very brutal. I wonder if you would agree and reread Stalin's imposition of socialist realism. It wasn't there was striving multiplicity in the 20s and then brutal Stalin came, imposed socialist real realism. In all histories that I've read, Stalin's introduction of socialist realism was an extremely popular move because ordinary people were sick popular and... For whom? Popular for whom? I mean... For ordinary people who were sick and tired of... I am for them, but... Of those, are we aware why, how unpopular why? among broad population, futurists, constructivists were, and so on and so on? Do you know that Eisenstein's, those late uh, movies, October, uh, The Old and the New, they were a total fiasco. They played for two weeks in a suburban movie, people, <laughs> movie theater in Moscow. So what Stalin but offered to people... Wasn't, wasn't Eisenstein Potemkin uh, completely enacted by the people? Uh, or at least no, well, it was the, the other way around. I know what you are referring to. When they were celebrating, I don't know which uh, anniversary of the revolution. And, and they paraded the third no, international No, no, you are probably referring yes, to that famous where, uh, where all of them uh, uh, participated, all uh, the artists, how is it called, the one, Black Square, my God, Black Square. Malevich. and so on. That big reenactment of revolution in 1920-21. But already year. Potemkin, I read analysis here, it was a hit abroad, my God, Soviet <laughs> cinema. It wasn't a big success in Soviet Union itself. What they liked there was Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and so on. <laughs> I don't think they had very many cinemas to actually watch. Oh, it's a miracle. Right? They did in the 20s. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a free import of films. My God, I saw Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford visited the Soviet Union. It was thousands of people gathering them and so on and so on. But so, the, the question I think also has to do with moving into the 30s where Shklovsky, whose brother was sent to the Gulag in order to bring him up into the uh, construction sites of the, of the canals, yes. um, along with Rodchenko, who then produced the propaganda machine for USSR in construction, which becomes a kind of Western version of this social, socialist realism, where they actually produce rendered photography as a I, kind no, of vehicle for no. I agree with you. It was decisions. a tragedy, horror, the way Stalin crushed avant-garde. I just think we should see the 20s in a much more problematic way. They were not a lost paradise. For example, I've written about it, and Boris Groys edited the documents to, in, with Zurkamp, two times 1,000 book on. You know what was almost the predominant popular view, not among ordinary people, but among the intellectual in the 20s? A kind of Soviet version of tech gnosticism. They did it the first, what Ray Kurzweil and others are doing it today. Trotsky even was part of it. I quote it somewhere. Trotsky wrote in 25, the big test of 
communism is not just destroying capitalism and so on. We should move forward and create a new man, and he means it literally, in the biological sense. Homo sapiens, we should say goodbye Homo sapiens, you did his work, you are too primitive and so on. And they had a very precise metaphysical vision. They claim that uh, sexuality is the enemy, the ultimate enemy, because now we conquer political power, economic power, but sexuality is still too spontaneous. So their idea is this one, a very precise one, that our feelings, sentiments, should work like in a machine, uh, how do you call it, where you read what is the temperature and so on. Thermometer. Sorry? Thermometer. Yeah, yeah, that we should acquire this distance towards reality that, you know, you don't feel heat, fear, pleasure, you just register it and then you regulate your life and so on. It was all this idea which is, I found, wonderful predecessors to this idea. My favorite Cartesian philosopher, uh, 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 Malbranche, mm -hmm. he had this idea that for him the original position of Adam was like this. Before the fall, Adam had this type of distance. Mm -hmm. And he says clearly, they were having sex like crazy in paradise. But On it was note, totally we... mechanic sex. Uh, for Adam, raising his penis was exactly the same as raising his hand. He did it as hard work. Then comes fall. You know what is fall? Fall happens when you lose this distance and are immediately affected by reality. And the origin of the fall for Malbranche is naked Eve. When Adam saw naked Eve, he made an epistemological mistake. He thought, oh, now I'm in direct contact with object. And then he has a wonderful theological idea that uh, God punished man because Adam and said, okay, you think you will be like me, a master? I will punish you so that I will make it so that part of your body will be in, uh, no, incontrollable by you. And you have a long theory in Augustine on this, how... The true punishment for sin is erection. You know, you cannot control it. It happens when you don't want it, when you want it, it doesn't happen, and so on. So it's, an, and all this re-emerged surprisingly in the, this is the most interesting phenomenon of the 20s, I think. And they were all in it, even Trotsky was tempted by it. It goes as my gratitude to Lenin that he never fell for it. Bogdanov, great Lenin's opponent, was into it. This idea of creating immortality, we should all move to a higher level of existence, and so on and so on. So all I'm just saying is the 20s are not just the simple avant-garde Very weird things happened mm -hmm. in the 20s. Yeah. I think, can, do we, are we? What? Are we done? Yeah, but there is another typical of you. Look, uh, there are many is... questions. No, 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 no. You were a centrist, but you ignored the left and the right. Okay. <laughs> Daniel. Yeah, but there is also then... then. I don't know you, but you. Hi, I'm Daniel. Um, so I'm I'm not really a philosophy expert, so I apologize if this comes across a little naive. But um, uh, Graham, you specifically uh, talked about the idea of buildings as symptoms and, um, and talked about how we need to take a more formalist approach that yeah. makes it more of a closed system uh, and to do the same with art. Um, and 
Again, I'm not a philosophy expert, but in my undergrad, I read some David Hume, and he talks in his writings on imagination that any process of creativity is essentially um, taking from like quotidian experience and either augmenting, compounding, dividing, or multiplying, whatever. Um, so I just want to open up the question of whether or not either of you agrees or disagrees with this idea um, that David Hume has about creativity. and. If you do agree, if it's possible at all to actually produce anything, buildings, art, or anything uh, in a completely Sorry? closed system. Hume. 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 David Hume. Well, you, you can't build it in a completely closed system, but that doesn't mean it can't be a closed system by the end. So, for example, I'm, my body is made of all kinds of subatomic stuff and cells and veins and things. It doesn't follow that my body is just a collection of all those things assembled together. There's something more, the way they're arranged this body has more to it than all those individual parts. And I would say, yeah, I don't believe we're born with innate ideas about how to create art. Create art. I think we have to draw from our experience. It doesn't follow that an artwork simply dissolves into its surroundings, its social, political, environmental surroundings. There's a point at which a creation is cut off from its uh, environment. In the crudest sense, all authors and all artists die someday. Their works are left behind. And the works can be understood in different cultures. They can be understood under, from different standpoints. And so there's a certain innate formalism at work in any object. And where I would disagree with the classical formalists in various fields is simply, as I already said about Kant, that Kant tries to separate the subject and the object and all this formalism mm -hmm. so that there's uh, ethics is all here, art is all here, mm -hmm. ontology is all here. Um, you can have a formal thing that's made of a human, non-human compound, right? So again, ethics, the human mind is not necessarily the unit of ethics. I think the unit of ethics is the human mind plus something that it takes seriously. In the arts, I happen to think that there is no arts without a beholder. Even though Freed thinks that if an artwork exists only for a beholder, then it's too theatrical. I think theater is of the essence of art, and of architecture, by the way. I think that, that there needs to be a person there appreciating it, or it's not a work. I don't think after nuclear holocaust, there's any art or architecture left. And so in that sense, the, the works close off, but they might close off with an observer, or they might close off with a sociopolitical effect in some cases, like Guernica or Uncle Tom's Cabin, or other works that are impossible to understand without the, the events that gave rise to them. But you know what? Would you go as far here, I support you, you know, also mm -hmm. in what sense? Well. Historicists like to say, to understand a great work of art, you have to know the entire historical context. Right. I claim, no, exactly no. the opposite. Mm -hmm. A great, truly great work of art is the one which, A, precisely can be understood and sometimes works even better when torn out exactly. of its context and retroactively. Look, I think, here I'm a radical, okay, idealist if you want. It's wrong to say, to understand Shakespeare, you have to know Elizabethan England. No. To understand today Elizabethan England, you have to read Shakespeare. That's, yeah. If you directly were to find yourself, for example, even some friends from Iran told me, uh, don't just go to Iran and look around. You will understand nothing. Mm -hmm. Look some good movies and so on. And, and that's for me, although this is very traditional to say, the miracle of Shakespeare. How... He survives this metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. And it's not just there is an original Shakespeare, what he really meant. I don't care what he really meant. Mm -hmm. the, it's wonderful how each epoch reinvents Shakespeare. And that's for me the true miracle to keep it alive. Look, that's why I'm a Wagnerian. He may be a very bad guy, vulgar anti-Semite. But isn't it wonderful that today great stagings of, of Wagner 
an almost an exclusive domain of left-wing Jewish directors, you know. <laughs> Wagner was, this is the great ideological triumph, Wagner was totally reappropriated by Jewish progressives and so on. Here I see your notion of in itself. Mm-hmm. We, it's wrong to be a historicist and say, but Wagner didn't mean this. Mm-hmm. He didn't produce a finished work. What later interpretations are not just later interpretation. Right. They affect the in itself, the identity right. of the very that's work right. of art. Mm-hmm. And that's the only true historical approach, mm-hmm. not the cheap historicism you have to look mm-hmm. at the... Co- this is why, sorry, just to finish, in my crazy idealism, haha, you wouldn't go so far, I love what Hegel writes about mm-hmm. Peloponnesian Wars. Yes. A crazy... He says that the spiritual result of Peloponnesian Wars was Tukidides book about them. Mm-hmm. Like, to put it in vulgar terms, wonderful ideal, that real war had mm-hmm. to be fought so that in order to enable a book being written about it. Mm-hmm. And in some spiritual sense, this is true. Mm-hmm. The objective function, now we can say retroactively, of Elizabethan England was to enable Shakespeare to write his plays. And I was once in San uh, Francisco and I... Um, uh, humiliated them, they started to shout people. I said, you know that in the same way, the only reason for your stupid city, San Francisco, to exist was to enable Hitchcock to shoot vertigo there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, of course, this is nonsense at the material causal yes. level. But in some spiritual sense of spiritual inheritance, it is true. Elizabeth is the one who lived in the period of Shakespeare and so on. I promised one question from the right. Maybe this is the final question. Ah, that's where your heart is. Young no, lady. <laughs> Who? Yes. Make a choice, the lady Maybe. or the man? The lady. Okay. <laughs> Next to the column. Hi. Um, Graham's question is directed at Thank you. You. Um, you said that reality is a more important word than truth, mm-hmm. and that truth is out there, but it is unknowable, which I agree with. But I have a nagging thought that this attitude is exemplary of the position that the left is so guilty of taking the position of taking a higher moral ground. Mm -hmm. And so how, can you speak to how this attitude, uh, how you see it functioning in the project of renewing the left, the project of the left, or whatever you might want to call it? But is this your project at all to renew the left? It's not. (laughs) She agrees with him, but she wants your policy. Maybe I should should first say this. I cherish many of the goals of the left, but I would never call myself a leftist. And why not? Exactly. Why not? I was going to say why. Yeah, yeah. Two reasons. There are two things for me that are crucial to political theory, and I think the left misses both of them. One of them for me is that there is no political knowledge, right? And on the left, you, you have this idea that we know, we know what the diagnosis is from a Marxist standpoint, a Rousseauian standpoint. I don't think we have any political knowledge. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think non-human actors are a very important part of politics, and the left tends to be very humanist, very, very human-centered. I know Marx gives a lot of analyses of factories and things, but I think we need to start bringing non-human actors into politics. And also, I think we need to be willing to be more surprised than the left is often willing to be. Uh, I had a nice discussion with the late Mark Fisher about this. Mark Fisher took your line that uh, we've had a total failure of imagination. It's easier to imagine the end of the world yeah, than yeah, just yeah. to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah. But my, my answer to that was, is Frederick Jameson really more imaginative than Steve Jobs? I'm not sure that he is, right? That in, some, in some cases, the left keeps recycling the same discourse and the same complaints about everything. 
Sometimes the imagination comes from elsewhere, from, from what the left denounces. Uh, a complaint about your friend Badiou. All of the events that he counts as political events, none of them are going to surprise Badiou because they're all based on the communist invariant, as he says. Nothing's going to happen that makes Badiou say, oh, maybe I was wrong, maybe the left is wrong here or there. Right? It's going to be, communism is going to prevail in every one of his events. Whereas in the other events, he's more open-minded, right? You're not sure what the next scientific event is going to be or the next amorous event or the next artistic event. So I worry that uh, there's this idea that we already know what the truth is. I don't think we have any idea what the best political system is going to be. This is what Foucault said to Chomsky, by the way, in their famous debates. Chomsky said the best social system would be this, and Foucault kind of ironically said, I'm not as advanced as Chomsky. I have no idea what the best political system is, and I'm with Foucault on that point. I don't know. Um, but if, I think renewing politics in general means coming into contact with reality, and so I think the coming politics probably has to be based in some way on the climate issues as well as the refugee issues. So to that extent, I agree with Latour, that you need to not be an escapist. You need to face up to what the problems are. And some of those problems may lead to solutions that you might have previously rejected. Maybe, for example, we should stop whining about capitalism only all the time, or neoliberalism, as people call it now. Uh, maybe there are some things from capitalism that we're going to need to preserve and that can be beneficial in ways that we didn't foresee. So I wanna, I'd like to approach politics with a, not radical openness, because I hate that phrase, but radical attentiveness to reality. And I think what we have here is we have a president with no sense of reality whatsoever. That if anything characterizes him, it's not just that he's beyond truth because politicians have always lied, right? It's that this one seems to have no sense of reality whatsoever. I don't even think he, I think he believes half to three quarters of what he says, even when it's easily contradicted by video footage or polls. Uh, I think we have somebody who has radically lived his life not in contact with reality and his, his wealthy upbringing and all these other factors have enabled that to happen. And it's very dangerous for all of us. I, I tend to, surprisingly, if I may just add okay. a little bit, yeah. I, I agree with you, but first, I agree with you that all that knowledge of the future in politics, the unfortunate Marxist or some Marxist metaphor of, of uh, uh, riding the train towards the future and so on, no, but the, you have another life, for example, recently I was rereading some, ooh, some people hate him as a proto-totalitarian, Saint-Just. <laughs> and he uses a wonderful metaphor. He said, we in the French Revolution, we are as if on a ship in a wild storm entering an uncharted territory. We don't know where we are going. I mean, he was extremely open here. On the other hand, I agree with much that you said, like, and that's, the, I agree with you, the left has to admit this. Like, that was when I was talking with people on Occupy Wall Street. I was just asking them, but what do you want? What's your project? They didn't have an idea. So we have to admit this. Mm -hmm. We don't have an idea. Even people who are critical of capitalism, mm -hmm. what do they want? It's just what I ironically refer to as left Fukuyamaism. We mm -hmm. accept the system it is with a little bit more glass, something more radical. But you know where I am? Nonetheless, why do I nonetheless remain in some sense a communist? I claim that precisely what you mentioned, refugees, uh, ecology, mm -hmm. I would add intellectual property, biogenetics, and so on, mm -hmm. these are problems of commons. Mm -hmm. And we will have mm -hmm. to reinvent some kind of yeah. large-scale collective decision. I have no idea how mm -hmm. will it look. Only in this very vague sense, mm -hmm. I remain a communist. Our problems are problems of commons, and it's clear that, for me, that if we keep just capitalism the way we have it, it reproduces itself and it doesn't allow us, for example, 
to confront ecological crisis. Mm -hmm. I agree that with proper taxation and so on, you can do things, but they are not enough. So, again, I agree with your diagnosis, but I think we should think, of course, nothing to do with 20th century communism that was an ultimate failure and so on, but my God, problems are all the problems that you enumerated, mm -hmm. refugees. Mm -hmm. These are problems of our commons. Are we segregated? How to bring us together? Mm -hmm. Ecology is the problem of our natural commons and so mm -hmm. on and so on. Yeah. But it's a very open idea. And w would you agree with me to go even further here? I claim that the last myth to be dropped mm -hmm. is this leftist obsession with, uh, after the left abandoned uh, uh, welfare state, radical left, and uh, communism, state communism. I don't like this uh, obsession with, you know, local democracy, immediate transparency, and so on. I don't think this works. We need large-scale decisions, and so on. And even concretely, I know I repeat this line, but I like it. Uh, Imagine a society described by these partisans of local democracy, community, non-representational politics mm -hmm. we are. It would be a nightmare. Yes, Every afternoon you have meetings, how do we educate our children, how to... Or, no, yeah. I want to live in a properly, nicely alienated society. <laughs> Some <laughs> invisible agencies yeah. provide water, health care, yes. and so on. And the point is to fight for the right kind of alienation. Yep. My politics is, once I shocked my German friends, I gave an interview, they told me, you are critical of this or that, what's your model? I had a uh, 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 well-structured alienation in an efficient bureaucratic socialism. And they didn't like it, as you can imagine. Thank you. You see, we are Stalinists. You remember my analysis, and you can check it up, I was right, that a fascist leader, when he is applauded, he just receives the applaud. A Stalinist leader yes. always stands up and applauds himself. <laughs> you know, the meaning being, I'm just one of you, servant of the people. Did you notice that we applauded? I applauded you, I thought you were applauding me. I applauded No, I was applauding myself. <laughs> Fuck you, I was applauding myself. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Slavoj. Thank you to the audience. Yeah,